Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. If you woke up this morning wondering why we appear to be stoking up fights with China, Russia and Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't be alone. The Chinese government is warning us not to make an enemy of them by ditching the Huawei deal. The Russians are threatening retaliatory measures over the UK's uh, new hostile sanctions against the Kremlin and Saudi Arabia has been identified as having 20 notorious individuals and or organisations that are responsible for human rights abuses. This is all the work of Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, himself a former human rights lawyer, who has persuaded the government that it's time to stand up to these rogue nations who go around the world doing whatever they like. China's threats to launch a trade war against the UK if they are not allowed to be part of our 5G communications network is surely proof enough of why we shouldn't be in business with them, isn't it? London is already awash with billions of pounds from Chinese and Russian investors, oligarchs and the like, and the petrodollars in the Middle East are responsible for oiling many of the wheels of commerce in our capital city. Is it a price worth paying? We'll be talking to the Henry Jackson Society to find out. 0344 499 1000. I think everybody agrees uh, that we do not want to be pushed around by ghastly individuals who would rather uh, stick a knife in your back than actually you know, do you a favour. But the bottom line is, uh, is this the right time? Why has this time been chosen? Why is Dominic Raab taking on seemingly all three of these countries in the same week? And where's it all going to lead? That's what I want to know. Coming up later on, we'll be finding out what the latest coronavirus study from Spain is telling us about antibody testing with the always reliable Professor Carol Sikora. And we'll be looking ahead to Chancellor Rishi Sunak's summer statement tomorrow uh, in which he's going to do away uh, with an awful lot of things which cost an awful lot of money. Plus, we'll be talking about the dangers of e-scooters, which are now the latest contraptions to be infesting the roads. Also, uh, I'll be asking you about punch-ups in the office. Last night uh, at the Tottenham game, there was a bit of argy-bargy between some of the players, so I'll be asking you to reminisce uh, about the good old days when you used to be able to have quite big rows in the office with people that you didn't like very much, and some of them might have ended up turning a little bit rotten. Uh, 0344-499-1000. Meanwhile, over in La La Land, Harry and Meghan are still bleating on about how guilty we should all be feeling. Today's foray out of their privacy-enclosed mansion is an attack on the Commonwealth, of which, of course, Harry's grandmother is the head. Charming, isn't it? Uh, we'll be looking to hear from you today as well because you are the eyes and ears of the independent republic. Tell us what you're thinking, how it's going out there in the real world. We're going to be talking travel in Wales, travel in Scotland, pubs opening, uh, money being given to music venues, all kinds of stuff. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
And if you're not doing it already, don't forget, you can live stream the show uh, right here on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. So you can watch us uh, as well as listening to us, which is a thing, uh, some would say, of great beauty. Let's go straight to our first guest, though. Matthew Henderson's director of the Asia Studies Centre at the Henry Jackson Society. This morning, the Daily Mail um, has got a remarkable story on the front saying that the ex-MI6 spy uh, who's got a dossier sparking a huge storm about UK politicians, establishment figures, uh, basically claiming that China has targeted them to be agents, targeted them to be lobbyists, targeted them to try and persuade people uh, in the higher echelons of our society that the more we have to do with China commercially, the better it's going to be for everybody. Remarkable stuff. Matthew, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Glad to be with you. Yeah, thanks very much indeed for joining us. I mean, I don't understand quite the timing of all of this, so maybe you can help us out with that, because it does seem rather ambitious, does it not, for Dominic Raab to suddenly launch himself um, at these three massive, powerful countries, Saudi Arabia, Russia and China, all in the same week. Well, I have the greatest respect for the Foreign Secretary's decision, but I have to say that this is simply a question of risk-gain analysis, Uh, I don't know how that calculation's been done in Whitehall, but I can very well imagine. The point is that uh, a relationship and relationships go two ways. Uh, We don't need to be reactive all the time and respond to blackmail and threats as if that's the only way we can go. There are alternatives. And in any case, the point is that this this concerns risk. Now, the definition of risk that I use is that if somebody, a rival or an enemy, uh, intends to harm you, and if they have the capacity to harm you, and if you're exposed to those harms, then you need to protect yourselves. And to me, that's what a government is there to do. Mm. I, I see what Dominic Raab has talked about as being pursuing that kind of defensive agenda and protecting British interests, not endangering them further. No, sure. I mean, we've been talking about Huawei, for example, since before uh, Theresa May ceased to be prime minister. Uh, and it was fact it was leaks from one of her cabinet meetings about Huawei uh, that caused the resignations of various people. So, I mean, the Huawei question has never really gone away. But are we now reaching a point, Matthew, where a decision will have to be made? I do very much believe that. And it's my understanding, I may be mistaken, that the National Security Committee will meet next week to think about it. But at any rate, the decision is effectively making itself, it seems to me. Yes. I mean, it would appear that uh, that Huawei is not going to have as big uh, an access to uh, the 5G network as they would have hoped to have. But now, of course, the Chinese government is making fairly covert uh, and somewhat overt threats that that this will not be a good thing for our trading relationship. Well, that completely underlines what I was saying before about risk, because if you're locked into a relationship, with a very powerful state that operates on a completely different series of codes from yourself. And the way that your trading relationship with them goes is in terms of threats and bullying. You're better out of it, quite frankly. It will never come to any good. No. But how much of our modern kind of uh, economic structure in this country is intertwined with China? Because one of the things we learned, for example, Matthew, during um, the, the, the height of the COVID crisis was that we could not get an awful lot of goods into this country because they were coming from China. You know, we are so reliant upon China just from their manufacturing base um, that we'll need to change the way that we run our economy, won't we? Well, that's an excellent point, Mike. And of course, as you will recall, the Henry Jackson Society has done uh, an important report on this subject where we estimated Britain's dependencies and uh, began to make some suggestions as to how they could be dealt with. There are ways of doing it. And one of the things that we find in our report is actually when it comes down to it, the specific products that we at the moment depend very much on China for are not that many. And there are certainly alternatives or ways of doing this. Mm. But the bigger point is the economy as a whole has to be protected. Chinese investment is the thing they threaten to withdraw. 
There is less of it than they make out, and where it's targeted is more harmful than useful, in my opinion, and I suspect now in the foreign secretaries as well. Yes. When you've got people investing in your nuclear sector, who you can't trust, when you've got this telecoms thing, which is in exactly that frame, when a lot of the other investment basically involves hostile uh, um, mergers and, 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 and acquisitions, and when a lot of Chinese money is plied into activities in Britain, which actually benefit them far more, particularly when it comes to, uh, to intellectual property, to research and development at our universities, China's benefiting far more from its investment than we ever have. We need to get that balance sorted. Yeah, well, we've been hearing this morning that there's an awful lot of sort of patronage, shall we say, um, which is not necessarily always altruistic coming from China into the institutions of, of higher learning in this country. And in fact, many of them, as you say, are very reliant upon them. Also, we've seen some rather uh, off-colour stories in the papers this morning about people being approached by Chinese envoys, people being approached by, you know, friends of China uh, to try and sort of almost um, schmooze their way through uh, to getting deals. Absolutely. But I mean, schmoozing in Chinese style comes in all different sorts. Mm. But basically what it's about is weaponizing money and weaponizing mediocrity. The people who are targeted very often have some kind of angle, which mm. the Chinese can spot a mile off. They have right. a saying, if the egg isn't cracked, the flies won't gather. But I'm afraid there are a lot of flies buzzing a lot around a lot of cracked eggs right now. Right. And we need to get rid of them. And how easy is it going to be to clean all that up then? Because if this is what Sir Dominic Raab has embarked upon, um, it's like all of these things. It's like a bad Western, isn't it? You have to be fa fairly sure that you're going to kill everybody that comes into the town from the gang. Well, groupthink is a funny thing. And I think we've seen a very significant shift away from the groupthink that everything about China is basically OK, except, of course, for Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, India, uh, Tibet and so on. We, but we can handle those things because they don't affect us directly. That kind of groupthink, which was behind a lot of the lies that were promulgated about China being benign and win-win and all of that by their puppets over here, that groupthink is beginning to shift. And there becomes a point in a tide of change in, in group think that the opposite side fades away into an embarrassed mist and that's where they should go and that's where they should stay yes now the russian situation is slightly different um because what we're being told of course is that we've got you know something in the order of 49 individuals and or organizations which have been identified uh, as being um, notorious i think is the word they're using um the russians are threatening to retaliate what will they do what can they do on the Russian side, we have to expect the worst. The Russian system is extraordinarily robust in this sort of way. It behaves very much as they would behave in an Eastern European situation, pressure of every kind, including pressure that would be covert and perhaps very damaging. Mm. Uh, but our security services are very well plugged into that sort of thing, as we know, and they will continue to fight our corner extremely effectively. The, the, it, the, the Russian style is well known to us and they've been an adversary and recognized as such for a long time. So we have the necessary muscle memory. That isn't necessarily quite the same on the China front. All, no matter, we can do it and we will do it. I mean, I quite like uh, what Dominic Raab has said. Those with blood on their hands won't be free to waltz into this country, buy up property on the King's Road, do their Christmas shopping in Knightsbridge or siphon dirty money through British banks. You cannot set foot in this country and we will seize your blood-drenched, ill-gotten gains if you try. Does that mean that they're going to seize the ill-gotten, blood-stained, ill-gotten gains that are there now? I mean, for example, and I'm not accusing in any way the Qatari regime of having blood on their hands, but they own an awful lot of property in the city of London. In fact, I'm looking at the Shard right now, which is owned by Qatar. Well, if we've embarked on this path, we have to follow it through, follow it through consistently and rationally. And I'm sure we will do that and in, in an advised manner. But the point is that principles are principles. They're not for sale. And these should have been our principles. The Magnitsky concept is something that Britain essentially bought into almost at once. I mean, who could not? 
Bill Browder is extremely impressive, and the whole story of it is 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 really quite appalling. And mm. this is a, the right way for the world to go. We need to stand up for our values, and we need the instruments and to follow through the use of those instruments, which have that effect. There's no good just standing on the hand on the sidelines and throwing up our hands in horror. That does not help. We must take action, and this is the time to take it. Well, say for example, uh, all of those big uh, countries with investments in the city decided to pull them all out, decided to say, right, I'll tell you what, we're going to sell the shard. Uh, all of the people that own property uh, from, the chi- from, the, from the wealthy sort of Chinese sector uh, decide to pull out of Britain because I've, I know for a fact that they've got a, quite a lot of investments in uh, a lot of buildings along the south coast. I mean, Brighton apparently is full uh, of buildings that have been put up with Chinese money. Uh, similarly, in the centre of London, you've got that going on. Uh, there'll be Russian oligarchs with loads of money here, which certainly might have been acquired uh, in a way which was not entirely legal. You know, are we going to go after those people? It would seem to me that we are. Mm. Um, that's for the government to decide. But speaking as a, as, a, as a watcher from the sidelines, what an excellent thing that would be. Because if it is the case that uh, a, a power which is hostile to us is exploiting our markets to make money and strengthen itself, we should be stopping that as a matter of principle sure. anyway. And if it has the effect of undermining a wicked leadership, and their cruel ways, then that is also good. And if it, it is, offers some sort of warning to other states that might be inclined to take advantage of loopholes or weakness or whatever, however they perceive it, then that is also good. We want to have our system um, involved with and connected to people who are have our sorts of interests at heart and who are not using this as an opportunity to undermine us as at the same time they're making money for themselves. Okay. That is not a great way to be operating. And what do you think has given Dominic Raab the kind of uh, the chutzpah, if you like, to do this now? Because he must have been encouraged by some organisations or uh, in some way uh, by maybe his own prime minister. Uh, but seemingly, you know, somebody has taken this decision that this is the time to do it. I think, as I said earlier, and this is purely a guess, that what we're looking at now is a recognition that the intention and the capability to do harm is now so palpably apparent, explicitly stated with threats, with aggression, with wolf warrior diplomacy, with all of these other dreadful things that are going on, that not now to take action would simply to turn, would be to turn Britain into a backwater where crooks can do what they want. It's as bad as that, quite mm. honestly. We have a lot to defend. We've got new trade relations to, to uh, develop back again properly with the Americans. How could we go into a trade deal with the Americans, with Huawei, um, as the dirty skeleton in our cupboard? Yeah. I don't think that's going to work very well. So just pure common sense dictates that we've got to take a stand. And if we end up not getting into a business with the Chinese government over, say, any building of nuclear facilities, I mean, does that change everything, as it were? And what could China do by way of retaliation that would be harmful to us in terms of trade? Well, the trouble is that we really don't know what their risk-gain equation looks like. And if they're possessed by aggression and vindictiveness, they will self-harm in this process Mm. too. It could be argued that what they've done in Hong Kong is a classic example of that. But these are people who seem to need to feel, for whatever reason, perhaps they're not as sure of themselves as they were. Perhaps they need to prove to their people that the enemy outside is really vicious and that they're fighting back against it bravely. All of this is very foolish. The world will not benefit from it. The whole point of international trade is that people do benefit rather than they use it as a, as a place to exercise malign leverage and arbitrary interfere, interference of this kind. This is not how the world is meant to work. Mm. And as I say again, it's a question of distancing ourselves, distancing ourselves as best we may from people who operate in that manner. And finally, Saudi Arabia. We're told by The Guardian uh, that a close aide of uh, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, is one of the names that they have uh, as a notorious individual. Uh, that's not going to do as much use in uh, Jeddah, is it? 
I'm not in a position to comment on the specifics of that, but I think the argument I made before applies. If there is information that behaviours of certain sorts are associated with certain regimes or individuals in those regimes, then the rule of law, as it is generally believed in, 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 in the joined up world that we are part of, does need to be seen to be fulfilled. That is how we would expect people to, let us say there was somebody uh, domiciled in America who had committed appalling crimes in Britain. Would we say, oh, it's all right, we'll have a trade deal with you, but by the way, uh, we'll, we'll leave that person there. No, it can't be done. We've got to make sure that the bits of the world that work according to rules do work according to rules. Yes, although it's been pointed out to me by Julie Hartley Brewer this morning that uh, the European Union have been talking about a similar kind of list of sanctions against similar countries and similar individuals, but they've never actually quite got around to doing it. I mean, presumably we would be happier uh, now doing this on our own outside of the EU, but we'd be happier also if the EU took the same view. I'm very encouraged indeed by the, the way that the EU, against all expectation in many ways, has actually smartened its act up very effectively on the China side, uh, bilaterally and as a group. And I think this 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 uh, realization that our interests are best uh, conserved and, and and forwarded by working together against that which threatens us, that is such a simple concept. We're just working out how to do it. But the way to do it is to work together. So the more of us who join up, the stronger a force we represent and the greater the conviction that come into our argument that these countries really do need to change their ways. Mm. They need to fit themselves back into the world order, not try to subvert it or revise it or overthrow it. And that will do nobody any good. No, I think so. And is there any sort of um, a part of this conversation which also takes in what happened in Wuhan and how China kind of reacted to this dreadful coronavirus, which has basically infected the entire world? One could argue as much. I think it would come down to a sense of shame, really. I mean, mm. it can be, there can be no question whatsoever in the streets of Beijing and elsewhere in China that uh, this happened on the watch of the Communist Party and that they tried to hide it for that vital two weeks. And that's when it spread and messed up the Chinese economy and has messed up the rest of the world and killed hundreds of thousands of people. This is something which is there on their ticket. And all the aggression, a lot of the aggression we've seen and a lot of the attempts to whitewash and dissemble and to claim virtue at having done it well, sorting it out, all of that will be noticed inside China. So sooner or later, what we're going to see is that that fact, which is indisputable, is actually undermining a lot of the resilience and the toughness and the hardness that we're seeing. If we're simply accepting it now and let them regroup and let them drag their economy together again by threatening puppet states that they control, then who are we to say that we responded correctly and protected our own interests and those of our people? This is the time when we need to respond, not in vicious containment of China, but in firmness, clarity and recognition of exactly what the threats are that we face so that we can try to mitigate them and reduce them, and hopefully cut them off at source. I think uh, be brilliant if it works. Matthew, thank you very much indeed. Matthew Henderson, director of the Asia Studies Centre at the Henry Jackson Society. Um, has Dominic Raab finally provided this country and this government with a backbone where we take on the Chinese government, the Russian government and the Saudi Arabian government? Because these are rogue states. Believe it or not, I can say that because this is a free country. I couldn't say it in Russia. I certainly couldn't say it in China. And there's no way I could say it in Saudi Arabia. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Tomorrow uh, in the afternoon, sometime after Prime Minister's questions, probably after one o'clock, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, will get up uh, and make his summer statement in which uh, he will say a lot of things that we have expected him to say. He may say some things that we don't expect him to say, but what we do know uh, is there's going to be some relief um, for uh, people on stamp duty. Uh, there's going to be vouchers being given for up to £5,000 for home insulation. Uh, it's going to be sort of putting meat on the bones of 
Boris Johnson's New Deal speech that was made last week. Let's talk now to Chris Clarkson, Conservative MP for Haywood and Middleton, uh, to see what he's hearing. Chris, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So this is sort of part two, is it not, of the, of the New Deal that was set out by Boris Johnson to spend five billion quid on build, build, build and, and all the rest of it. What are you uh, hoping to see tomorrow? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of good stuff in there already. I mean, we're looking at things like 1.5 billion going into hospitals to improve capacity in A and E to uh, sort of go into mental health. So there's there's a lot of the stuff that's already been trailed. But you know, obviously, I'll be keeping an eye out for lots of investment in the north. We've had some very positive noises already from the Chancellor. Um, you know, one of the nice things about this is that they've recognised that this this new deal, this building program, is actually going to be what we need now to get the economy moving again post COVID. Yeah, and as far as the kind of um, the the moves that can be done, obviously, there's an awful lot of um, concentration at the moment on on the furlough scheme, uh, trying to get people back to work, trying to make sure that you know not too many jobs are actually lost, and indeed that the furlough scheme doesn't just become a superannuated sort of unemployment benefit. Really, um, do you think there's going to be something new there in terms of trying to get more people back to work, or an acceptance that some businesses just won't be able to operate? Well, I think there is a recognition that some sectors are going to be slower to to reopen. So, for example, you've seen a package going into the arts, for example. Yeah. Um, a really big challenge that they were facing is that they make about a quarter of their annual income during panto season. Now, yeah. there's a very good chance that they, they're not going to be able to fully reopen that. So I do think you'll see some recognition that some sectors, um, also hospitality, you know, are going to struggle a bit more. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there is going to be a very sort of tapered approach in getting people back into work. Mm. I mean, the chances are already outlined how... Um, the furlough scheme is going to sort of taper off towards October. Um, you know, I think most businesses are actually quite keen to get the doors open again anyway, uh, because, you know, they're not making the kind of money they would have done if people weren't furloughed at home. And I think quite a lot of people who are furloughed want to get back to work too. Yeah. I mean, one of the big businesses that we need to really restart is tourism, isn't it? Because we can't really function in the centre of London uh, and in the centre of maybe Glasgow, Edinburgh, places like that without tourism, because in the end, you know, that fuels the uh, restaurant business, it fuels the theatres, it fuels the shops. I mean, there's an awful lot of money coming in. I think it's the third biggest business that this country has. And, and so we kind of need to encourage people to travel here as well, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we started looking at things like air corridors with countries that are, you know, sort of in the same same stage of the the COVID cycle as the rest of us. Uh, you know, we're, we're having those sort of sensible discussions about, you know, sort of where's safe to go to, you know, what's the safe approach to visit places. I would strongly encourage people this year to go and take a holiday in another part of the UK, you know, and have a look where it's, you know, sort of safe to travel to, you know, Cornwall, Devon, Manchester. Come to Manchester, by all means, come spend some money in our economy. Well, the Cornish you know, people don't want anyone going down there. They keep putting up signs saying, please don't come. Well, you know, I, I think like everybody, they're, they're trying to be sensible and make sure that, you know, you don't end up with 50,000 people on the beach at the same time. You know, we're going to have to observe things like social distancing. There's going to be a common sense approach to it. But you know what? You know, the, the best thing to do is spend a bit of money in the local economy. Yes, no, I agree with all that. But can anyone explain why Portugal's not on the list of countries to visit? Because it seems that Portugal has qualified in as much as uh, any other country that's on the sort of safe to visit list. It seems to have been missed out by, by accident, doesn't it? Can you not persuade somebody to add them in? Oh, well, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in epidemiology, so I mean, without looking at the, the figures, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But I, I would imagine that those discussions have taken place. I, I would imagine you'll see more countries come onto the list as, you know, the discussions I had with their governments about what's safe going forward than that.
Yes, exactly right. And as far as the um, the sort of the summer months are concerned, I mean, is there any is there any room for um, a kind of retraining program of some kind? Because obviously there'll be a lot of people, uh, as you were saying, in certain industries and certain businesses that just won't be able to to come back to the way that they were in the past. And maybe uh, there's room for retraining in some way. Well, I think you are probably going to see an element of that um, either in the statement tomorrow or going forward. I mean, certainly you know, the government's been talking about 111 million that's going into traineeships for for younger people. Yeah. But I, you know, I think we all recognise that there are going to be some people whose jobs simply don't exist now. Uh, you know, whatever other measures have been taken to save jobs, and a lot have been. Some jobs simply weren't you know saved by the, the measures that were there. So yeah, I do think that there's going to be some recognition of the fact that that, that people will need to be found some sort of you know niche. Yes, indeed. And and one thing as well, which is going to be interesting going forward, is the attitude that's been taken by Dominic Raab uh, overnight with the, uh, the sanctions busting measures that he's bringing in with uh, sort of looking at Saudi Arabia, looking at Russia, looking at China. You know, that could create a few sort of difficulties, I suppose, financially for a while. Um, but are you are you proud of Dominic Raab that he's taken this stand? Extremely. I have to say, I mean, there comes a stage where we decide, you know, how much do our values and our morals cost? And and quite rightly, Dominic Raab is, is looking at some of these countries that have, let's say, less than sparkling records when it comes to things like human rights. And we're making a values judgment. And I'm very, very pleased we are. Certainly, you look at the states in Hong Kong. You know, we have a moral duty to the people in Hong Kong. We have a moral duty to people in other parts of the world to actually demonstrate that we are a, a liberal functioning democracy. Yes. And at what point do you think the tap, the money tap gets turned off? Because lots of people saying today uh, how popular Rishi Sunak is, but he's popular uh, for one reason and one reason only, and that is that he's giving loads of money away to people. Um, presumably at some point he's going to have to turn that tap off and start to become slightly less popular. Well, I don't think it's a case of turning the tap off. I think it's maybe changing the speed of the tap and turning it from hot to cold. Um, if you just torture the metaphor to death. Um, the, well, the is when you start is, hosing people down with the cold showers? <laughs> well, I think it's moving from things like revenue spending to capital spending, and certainly that's what you'll probably see a bit more of in tomorrow's statement. You'll look at investment in, in things like infrastructure, things that are going to underpin the economic recovery. Yes. But, I mean, there isn't an endless money tree, is there? I mean, it seems sometimes that there is, because suddenly one and a half billion gets found to be given to the theatre business and the, and the arts. But, I mean, where is all this money coming from? Well, I mean, quite a bit of it is borrowing. And, you know, we've got to acknowledge that it's not what we would have liked to have done in the normal circumstances, but these are far from normal circumstances. And at the end of the day, you can't put a price on keeping people happy and healthy and safe. No, of course. And you're, uh, as you probably know better than anybody, um, the recipient of, of the uh, the breaking down of Labour in the northern constituencies and your, uh, your, your votes have been sort of loaned to you. So you're probably told by your constituents quite a lot. I imagine they would not want to see any rises in taxes, particularly for middle-income families who are struggling already. You know, what, what would be your view on that? Well, I, I generally speaking, don't think that tax rises are an effective way of boosting revenue across the board. Um, certainly, you know, if, if there are going to be increases, then they need to fall on those with the broader shoulders, and that's always the case. What I would say is that, you know, I'm not unique in having my vote lent to me. Everybody in every constituency had their vote lent to them, and, you know, we've got to make decisions that are right for the entire country. Yeah, OK. Uh, well, Chris, we should look forward very much to Rishi Sunak's speech tomorrow. Thanks very much for talking to us. Chris Clarkson, Conservative MP for Haywood uh, and Middleton. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's say a very good morning to Professor Carol Sikora, former chief of the cancer programme at the World Health Organisation, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Carol, welcome back. Very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Interesting story this morning from Spain. Uh, I'm sure you may have seen it in the Times, in which it says that there's been a study done uh, on people who suffered quite mild COVID-19 symptoms. And it says they may carry the protective antibodies for only a matter of weeks, which apparently will complicate the search for a vaccine. That's right. And not only that, very few of them are actually antibody positive. Mm. Uh, Roughly 5% across 60,000 people they managed to test in Spain. Uh, It is higher in Madrid and places that were more severely affected by the virus. So uh, in uh, in parts of Madrid, it was up to 15%. And this has been, we did the study right at the start with our staff in our cancer centers. Mm. It was only 6.4%. So that is the level of antibody protection. And therefore, the idea that antibodies are going to get you herd immunity is wrong. I mean, you don't get herd immunity until you've got 60% infected. And that's not going to happen if it's only 5 to 10%. So to look for something else. Now, the good news is T cells may be out there. These are the white cells in the blood that seem to have a very powerful effect against this, but are much more difficult to measure. So it's a tricky one, Mike, to to know how many people are really infected out there. And we all want to know. You'd want to know about yourself. Uh, Others want to know for other reasons. Governments want to know because it tells you at what stage the pandemic got to. But the good news, and I like to be optimistic about it, is that the infection rate is going right down at the moment here in the UK. Uh, Yesterday, less than 400 people infected. and, And yet testing is ubiquitous now. So uh, it's amazing. And we are coming out of this. Well, indeed, it does seem that way, doesn't it? And it seems that the kind of reoccurrence and, and the um, the smaller outbreaks are happening um, in very much small, um, sort of easily identifiable clusters, if you like. It's not as though the main sort of uh, infection rate around the country is doing anything but declining. That's right. So local, local little spikes here and there uh, and dying down. Um, that's what we're going to see. Now, the, 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 the whole bad scenario is some sort of second wave in September and then winter pressures causing breakdown of the NHS in terms of its normal function and therefore stopping cancer treatment, stopping heart disease treatment and so on. But I don't think that's going to happen. Now, there are prophets of doom out there, mainly the epidemiologists. They like being very gloomy. Mm. And they say, well, how do you know? 
And well, the answer is we don't really know, but there's no sign of it at the moment in those countries that came out of lockdown nearly three months ago, Austria, Czech Republic, and so on. And they've not seen even a tiny little blip. And they've got very sophisticated monitoring programs, much better than we have, uh, and a much more disciplined society. So uh, they've not seen anything. No. And time will tell. Pubs are open. Now, that is the breeding ground for an infection if you ever wanted one. I agree it's a new normal in a pub, having sat in one myself, freezing in the garden to try and get a beer <laughs> Uh, on Saturday lunchtime, uh, if only the weather had been a bit better. But uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see, but I doubt there'll be any rise. Um, we didn't see it with the demonstrations four weeks ago. We didn't see it with the beaches opening up in that lovely hot weather we had. So I, I think we're out of it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've got another sort of um, uh, pocket down in Merthyr Tidville, which appears to be around uh, another meat processing unit. These things seem to be germ factories, it seems to me. I wonder whether public health ought to have a look at some of these um, companies and say, look, guys, you can't continue to operate like this. Uh, if this is why the spread of a disease is happening, then you surely need to change your working practices, don't you? I think so. And not only that, the way in which uh, people, uh, the lifestyle of people, they have to huddle together in dormitories. I understand a lot of uh, labor from overseas yeah. coming a very cheap, probably below the, the, the minimum wage, which obviously is illegal. And I think it's just very sad. And uh, when you put people together for weeks on end, very close, there's no doubt any virus that gets into one of them will spread rapidly around the other. There's nothing we can do to stop that. So some sort of distancing is absolutely essential. And it's no coincidence, not just in this country, but in Germany, in a place called Gutteslohe, meatpacking uh, and other parts yeah. of the world. You know, meat markets are dangerous places to work, basically, for viruses. Yes, they really are. And I mean, as far as the testing and tracing situation is concerned, I'm seeing a story today where almost three quarters of tests posted out to individuals and care homes have not been returned. And a lot of the care homes apparently were stockpiling the tests and not carrying them out on people. We've also got a kind of debate this morning because of what Boris Johnson said yesterday uh, about the fact that some care homes didn't really carry out um, the way that they should have done some of the, the, the health checks that they should have done on, on, on some of their uh, patients and all of that. I mean, it's a bit of a mess in terms of who's to blame. I don't think we need to really look at who's to blame at this moment, do we? We've got to get out of here. Let's not play the blame game game because it's it's pointless. Mm. We have to get out of the mess. And I feel sorry for care homes. I feel so sorry for the staff there, on the whole, dedicated people looking after often challenging uh, inmates there, some of them lovely, some of them difficult to handle. And I think the, the way out is to, uh, is, is to make sure that we've got an understanding of how we proceed. Other countries have done much, much better in terms of the discipline around. And just posting a bunch of swabs to a care home and expecting it to be returned uh, by anybody patients themselves or by the staff seems sort of completely unrealistic in terms of the quality of the someone has to go around that knows how to insert a swab into the nose and and do it consistently right. test key, yeah. 
I mean, I've been saying today as well, Carol, that one of the most important things for the country is to try and get tourism back. But of course, one of the problems with tourism uh, is that people are travelling from other countries. And I realise that some other countries may actually be in better shape than we are, for example. But when you look at the United States uh, and see how bad the infection rate is there, I mean, would you be worried if we started to kind of open up the airports more and open up the tourism business because after all you know as I've been saying earlier on in the show London without tourists is never going to get back to normal. It's deserted now I'm sitting in my office in central London uh, in west London and it's I can tell you out there my favourite cafe's even shut I'm moribund because of that (laughs) I I can't stand I can't go and get a bacon sandwich in the morning so there's no doubt that Tourism is essential, and the whole hospitality industry has been the worst affected by it. I think we've got to be careful. It has been a surprise to everybody how both North America and South South America, Latin America, has really been so badly affected Mm. so late. And it's not like Europe. Europe, all the countries came to an end after four to six weeks, as we did. It's coming right down. But these countries across to the West in, in the Americas have not. And so it would be very open our doors to an influx of people from those countries without testing at the moment. Uh, but testing is the key. And I'm sure what we're going to see is a test at the point of care, in other words, beside you, done within an hour or less uh, with, with uh, the same material, the nose swab, and eventually maybe even with saliva. That's the way forward. So we can monitor this uh, because without it, it's going to be very difficult for free international travel. And that the whole hospitality industry depends on that. Absolutely right. Now, you've spoken before about the uh, the misgivings you've had about cancer treatments and people being able to get cancer treatment the way that they should be getting it. Are you happy that that is becoming um, um, more, more improved as, as we go forward? There was a Panorama documentary on last night, uh, which was kind of predicting that some 35,000 people could actually end up dying as a result of not being able to get the treatment they need. It's, it's, we talk about it more, which is great. Uh, you know, one of the reasons for taking out the Twitter account three months ago is to keep pushing the continuing with cancer services during this whole thing, which happened in Italy, it happened in even in Wuhan, in China it happened. They have written reports about cancer treatment during the pandemic. We sort of stopped much of it. We certainly stopped the diagnosis of cancer. So very few patients over the last three months. There should be 90,000 patients diagnosed with cancer over the last three months. It's very difficult to get a real estimate, but it's certainly less than 30,000. That doesn't mean 60,000 cancers have been avoided. Far from it. They're there. We just haven't found the patient. Hmm. And that's the worrying feature at the moment, Mike, that we've got to find these people because they need treatment. Yes. And is it, are you able to reassure people? I've been speaking to some people who have got treatment coming up or they've got surgery um, not, not far from here locally at Guy's Hospital. Um, is it safe? Can they, can they be reassured, as it were, that it's safe for them to go and get the, the operation that they want? It's completely safe now. And we have the testing capabilities. Uh, it's so much, I and mean, it's all about risk. And so there is a risk of getting COVID to all of us. It's very low now. 
there's certainly a risk if you don't do something about cancer, if you delay it, it'll grow and your treatment will be more complicated and the outlook will be poorer than if you get it treated now. So it's a balance of the two risks. And at the moment, it's completely on the side of cancer being the biggest risk. So any progressive symptoms, go to your GP if you've been diagnosed. Don't be afraid to go and have a, a scan, to have a surgical procedure to get into treatment. It's important you do that. Yes. And as far as um, uh, GP surgeries are concerned, you know, it would seem from the people I've spoken to that there's very few new cases coming through, certainly uh, in the south of England anyway, um, although it may be different in other parts of the country. Um, You know, most GPs are now saying that uh, it's safe to come back and get yourself treated if you've got anything else that you need treatment for. I think we've all been surprised at the power of the government's uh, fear message at the beginning of all this. It's impacted on people, especially older people, who are still, some of them, locked up, uh, not wanting to get out and about, not willing to go to the shops at all. It is time to come out, and certainly time, if you have symptoms, to get that doctor's appointment. You may not have to go to the surgery. It may be dealt with on the phone or by, uh, by some sort of uh, a, a Zoom call or mm. something. And then go along to have the investigation in the hospital. It's much safer to do that than to stay isolated. Right. And as I always ask you, uh, Carol, whenever I have you on, um, are we still looking at the the possibility uh, of a much weaker and and, and much less virulent strain now of COVID-19? So that if you were to get it, for example, like the people who have had to shut down a couple of pubs now after they went there with symptoms... um, are they are are we likely to see less fatalities i suppose is my question it, it seems to be the case that the virus is losing its punch for some reason quite why we don't know but in italy it's been well documented that the viral infections towards the end of the pandemic there uh which, which is nearly completely over now but the, the the infections towards the end had much the patients had much more virus load it's as though the virus just wants to live with us that's what these viruses mm. want it's like a dance that the host and the uh, and, and the the pathogen dance together and uh, eventually the pathogen wants to embrace the host and live with it forever and many of us have SARS from 2003 in us and we're sort of just living with it in a controlled way and goes circulating round. This one has been exceptional. This uh, the COVID-19 has been exceptionally different. But I hope that it's over and I hope that now society can get back to normal and by September near complete normality. Yes, and certainly the suggestion that schools will be able to return in September and pupils won't have to social distance in the classroom is an encouraging move. I'm not quite sure how they've worked that one out uh, in government, but presumably if they can, if we can do away with social distancing uh, in the classroom, albeit that the individual classes have to be separate from one another, then that's very encouraging as well. It's all about containing things. So if something goes wrong, you only have a limited number of people to contain, to sort out. I think that's the strategy there. But if you've got, say, 10 people, you know their names. And if one of them does develop coronavirus, you basically make sure the others don't mix with another group with the same. Uh, and, And that is how we can do it. Even small children, one can do it with them. They don't need to realize it's going on necessarily and understand it. Mm. But the, the alternative of saying, oh, we're going to wait till 
January before we send the schools back is, is too horrific to contemplate in terms of the loss of education, especially for those from less fortunate backgrounds. They just can't do it. They mm. haven't got tools, they haven't got the iPads and all the other gadgetry at home, and there's no incentive. Uh, and they're getting very, very poor deal from many schools in the last month or two. So we've got to, got to do better from September. Yes, I think that's right. Professor Carol Sakura, thank you very much indeed. Former Chief of the Cancer Programme at the WHO, of course. Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Um, I think there's still, as ever, a certain amount of individual responsibility that we must have as far as the care home arguments are concerned. I don't think Boris Johnson was blaming individual carers at the care homes. I think he was saying that some of the care homes, which are all privately run, let's not forget, uh, or by far and away the large bulk of them are privately run, uh, were not carrying out the testing, were not carrying out um, the precautions, perhaps, that they were supposed to be carrying out. And it comes as no surprise, uh, because these are the same organisations that didn't provide PPE for any of their employees, right? Now, these are people who are employed privately, not by the NHS. Uh, these places are not run by the NHS. These places are not run by the government. They are not necessarily under the auspices of government, because government does not supply private places of uh, medical treatment. It just doesn't, because why would it? Why would people who make millions and millions of pounds in profits every single year because they charge people anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 quid a week to look after them uh, not buy their own protective equipment? That's their job, and that's what they should be doing. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Marie, uh, who's in Putney, wants to talk about care homes. Hi, Marie. Hi, Mike. Yeah, I just want to say about what Boris Johnson had to say. I, I knew he'd be playing the blame game very shortly and trying to shift it. But, you know, at the end of the day, care homes are what they are. They're facilities for people who've got chronic conditions or dementia, whatever it may be. And they can't look after themselves in their own homes. Um, and their families um, can't look after them either. Or there's specific reasons why right. they do need some sort of care. So they're in that facility for that reason. Sure. They're not used to dealing with a pandemic. No, of it's course. It's completely different. It's a completely, you know, different set of, uh, of, of situation for them. Most of those people won't be medically trained, those care workers. They'll be very low-paid workers. They don't understand the, the specifics and the details of um, infection control in a pandemic. And furthermore, I think Boris Johnson knows very well that the way those um, homes are set out, it, it does not enable you to socially distance. Furthermore, he is in charge of an NHS that um, was allowing people to come out of the care. Um, out well, of that the, was, uh, well, he's not in charge of COVID. Public Health England, though, is he? And Public Health England made most no, of these he's, he's, decisions. No, but he's the Prime Minister. Yeah, and I he, know. He's, he's in charge of the National Health Service at the end of the day. Well, no, he's guided I mean, No, he's guided by the scientists in the National Health Service who said to him that this is what we need to do in order to free up the bed space in the NHS. He's not going to argue with them and say you well, shouldn't well, well, do just, that. Just he, what, he's not going to think for himself. A man who's got a, a first-class degree from Oxford. Well, he's not. So a, he's not a doctor, Marie, is he? No, I know he isn't. But when somebody, well, if a doctor comes, sense. all right. Well, how about this? If a doctor comes to you common and you're sense. the and you're the prime minister, mm. right? And a doctor mm. says, "Look, here's what we need to do in order to make space yeah. in the hospitals. We need to release all of the patients yeah. that are currently in hospital into care homes." Are you going to say you can't do that? I'd say it's not a good idea unless you're testing how, them. Of how, course, how would you know that though? 
Well, I would know because it's obvious. It's common sense stuff, this. This is really basic stuff. I mean, basic. There are 10-year-olds out there who would know this. Really? If it's infectious and it's going around hospitals, yeah, of course. Well, let me ask you and this. they're moving. Let me ask moving, you this. No, let me just, no, let me just finish. All right. Then ask me. Then ask me. It. Okay, then. Um, they're moving people around the wards from ward to ward. We know that in some cases they were warding, moving them to six different locations in the hospital. Who was so moving around, them? Uh, the hospital itself. What, you mean the, the, the health staff. workers? Yeah, the staff. The ones who know what there. they're doing. Well, do they all? I'm well, not so sure now you that. don't trust the NHS, it seems. Well, I don't. No, not not based upon the health the um what the uh, healthcare I've had from them. No, okay. I don't trust them. All right. That's right. Now that let me ask you. Let say. me ask you about no, the no, no, people. No, no, I haven't finished. The oh, haven't finished? Well, well, you no, get, hurry up because we've got to do the news in a minute. Well, I'll do my best. Go on. Uh, they're moving them from <laughs> ward to ward. Okay, yeah. infecting people as they go. Right. And then they let them out of the hospital back into the care home without testing them to see whether they've got coronavirus during the middle of a pandemic um now mr johnson i'm sure he knows uh, basics it's basic stuff that that's what you need to do and you need to be in charge of a system that is is able to think like that if not like germany for instance if not then you get the results that we've got you can't go you can't go blaming the care homes i don't think because he has the blamed the day, them well i think he is trying no, to well, he's trying no, to he's not. the blame yes he is well, he his, knows he's in well are you gonna let me ask you a question now because we've got about 30 seconds left. Yeah, go on. Right, all the care homes are run by private companies. Many of those private Mm -hmm. companies profiteer from the care that they give to some very vulnerable people, right? They charge an absolute fortune. I know. Are you telling me that they are not responsible for what happens inside their own care homes? And why why is that? I'm asking you a question. You're not answering it. I will answer it. I'll tell you, yes, it, in, in many ways they are responsible, but they're so they not. Their care faci- no, their care facility is not nursing homes, and they're totally different things. But they totally are responsible for what happens inside their own walls, right? In some respects, yes, but can I just tell you that the government decided it didn't, many, many, many years ago that it didn't want to run care homes at all. Yeah, any private. That was actually local things, councils that, that made that decision. Well, yes, indeed. It wasn't the government. It was lo- no, it was local councils that made that decision. Yes, but the government allows uh, it, it controls, doesn't it? At the end of the day, what happens? No, it doesn't. With, the with government council. does not control local council decision making. No, it doesn't. Well, why do they put it all out to local councils? It should be centra- centralised, then, shouldn't it? Well, they it put it out to local councils because the local councils asked for it to be put out to them because they said, being experts in their local areas, that uh, that was the best way to do it. But now they moan about it and say they can't afford to run Yeah, it's a funny old world, isn't it? Listen, thanks for your call. We've got to go to the news. Marie in Putney, a very sensible woman. I'd like to talk more to you, Marie. I want you to call me again because we're going to have a good round. But let's talk to Nick Freeman now, uh, high-profile lawyer, of course, specialising in all manner of things. He's also known as Mr Loophole occasionally. Nick, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon, mate. Now, I must admit, when I read uh, the, the story that we're about to discuss, I thought to myself, you could actually substitute e-scooters for, for bicycles and you'd be in the same place, wouldn't you? You'd be in a similar place. I, I actually think e-scooters are probably even more dangerous than bicycles mm. um, because, the, the, because they're going to be used on the roads and um, they're going to be obviously very, very quiet as bicycles are, but they're, just, they're, they're more difficult to see but they're, and they're not so stable. No. You've, um, and also the people from, from my from my brief experience, because they've been sort of available and, and for use, I would say, on the streets of London uh, for about the last year. But they've certainly seemed to have got a lot more populous uh, in the last so, sort of two months or so. But the people who use them don't seem to think that any of the rules of the road apply to them. No, well, they actually are, you know, from a legal perspective, they're a personal light electric vehicle. They're a mechanically propelled vehicle. 
and they're covered under the Road Traffic Act. Um, and you can get penalty points, you can be disqualified, you can actually go to prison. Mm. Um, so you, you've got law in place um, with teeth, which is different to the situation with bicycles, um, because it, with cycles, you have law in place. In my view, the law doesn't have any teeth. But as you indicated earlier on, you have the same common problem. You, you have no idea who is using an e-scooter in the same way that you have no idea who's using a bicycle. Right. Um, and so, as you said in your introduction, you know, we, we, need, we need to identify it so that they're responsible and they're accountable. And, of course, that the law will then have effect. Mm. What's the point in having law in place, serious law, penalty points for committing all sorts of offences, if we have no idea who is driving and no real means of ever finding out unless you actually grab hold of someone, detain them and try and get their yeah. details. Well, of course, um, which so which you could never really be in all good conscience uh, advised to do because you might be then likely not. to be absolutely prosecuted not. for some kind of, you know, enforced imprisonment or something. You could be guilty of a whole... A whole uh, whole group of different criminal offences and I would strongly urge people not, not to even think about it um, but so, so you're then left with a situation, you know, if someone films someone on an electric scooter um, driving, um, scooting whatever they want to call it in a particularly dangerous way, well that's fascinating to look at but who is it? Yeah. And, and what's, the, what's the point of the film? What are the, what are the authorities going to do? How, how are the police going to police them? I mean, the problem I have is that obviously can't be used on the roads. We don't have the infrastructure in place, um, so they're going to be they're, they're going to be on our roads. They can't be used on the pavements. Um, they're going to be used on our roads, and they're going to be, you know, in and out of traffic all the time. Um, and I just think they pose a huge risk, um, you know, particularly with HGV vehicles and with cars. You know, cars are going to have to watch their mirrors at all times to see if something's coming up quite quickly on their near side or their off side, and. You know, they are going to be incredibly vulnerable, you know, if it's wet, if it's windy. Um, they're not even, um, as far as helmets are concerned, that's advised. It's not even mandatory. No, um, I don't which, see which, many I don't see many of them at the moment wearing helmets. And, of course, they're allowed, allowed to, um, you know, go, go on their scooter with their with headphones on listening to music. Yeah. Um, which, in my, in my view, is, is total and utter madness. Well, I drove into work today, right? I drove up Bermondsey Street, which is a one-way street. There's a cyclist in front of me in the middle of the road, right? Not with his hands on the handlebars, so cycling without his hands on the handlebars, with earphones in. Yeah, without, without uh, due care and attention. Without due care and attention. And I'm having to drive very slowly behind him, obviously, um, because yeah. I can't go around him. And, I mean, there's that kind of thing is going on all the time. And then if you're lucky... You don't get the guy on the on the on the e-scooter sort of coming across him uh, in front of you, yep. um, but behind him, you know, going a completely different direction. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Well, the roads there's, there's going to be massive changes of direction, quick changes of direction, scooting literally all over the place, trying to get to the front of a queue in traffic. Um, so it, it is. I, I'm, I'm fearful it's going to be carnage. Mm. You know, I spent I drive fifty thousand miles a year, so I'm on the roads all the time in England abroad and abroad, and you know, I have serious concerns for the safety. Um, of people who use e-scooters, as I do with cyclists. Yeah. But, but from a legal perspective, um, you know, the default position is going to be it's the motorist's fault, and you are going to have to basically prove, contrary to the normal assumptions that exist in law, that actually it's mm. not your fault, it was their fault. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not a healthy position. So the burden but, of proof is on you to prove yourself innocent? In, in real terms, it will be, yes. And, and it is now. If you're engaged in an incident with a cyclist, somebody that's vulnerable, you basically have to show that it wasn't your fault. The starting point is you are responsible. Right. Um, 
And, of course, because they're so vulnerable, and we understand that, and we, and we obviously have to respect that. No one wants to hurt somebody. who We, we don't want to hurt anybody. But if it, it's vulnerable, you have to exercise massive caution whenever you see them on the roads. Right. Um, and the problem is, of uh, course, and, though, uh, Nick, as you know, as, as, and you and I have discussed this in the past, I mean, you've got a couple of ideas, uh, amongst them some form of registration that could be worn by, by the scooter rider rather than put on the scooter because there's, there's no place really to put it. But we've tried to make this argument to cyclists and to the cycling fraternity, and they always push back against it because they think it's somehow a breach of their freedom somehow to be registered. And they claim that, you know, we pay road tax, we pay tax, we're ordinary people, some of us have drive cars yeah. and all of that. Why should we have to pay this extra amount of money or register? You know, they, they seem blind to, to the dangers of, of not doing it. Well, I think, I think they associate the freedom of cycling with the freedom from law and legal responsibility, and I think that's the difficulty. With e-scooters, I think it's going to be slightly difficult because it is a mechanically propelled vehicle. Um, and they, I, I think, although obviously it's only rental at the moment, and it's, I think the maximum speed is 15 and a half miles an hour, 12 and a half miles an hour. I'm not, not quite sure which it's going to be. Um, but they, there will be an element of insurance involved in, in, the, in the cover. And they will, of course. You, know, you can't just get on an e-scooter. You've got to be the holder of a full driving license, a provisional license, or a moped license. Mm. And you've got to be over 16. So it, it's, it's slightly different to cycling. But uh, you know, for me, it, there should be parity between both. And as we've discussed previously, they all should be legally accountable. And, you know, where would you put a registration plate on a scooter, on, on an e-scooter? Right. There simply isn't the place. So you have to have a registered tabard. And I'm not trying to be negative about it. I just think that they are, I think they're unstable. Mm. But within the safe infrastructure, they're a fantastic way of sort of reducing pollution, getting people to work in a quick and cheap manner. Uh, getting people off the vehicles and keeping them off public transport, and which at the moment is obviously critically important. Well, indeed. I mean, our trouble is, though, anything that Sadiq Khan likes, I, I immediately hate. So the fact that he's in favour of them suggests that uh, I won't be. <laughs> well, I think it's also important to bear in mind that he, he's got plans to increase oh, I know. Uh, the, the charge, the surcharge, um, congestion charge. Um, well, he's already increased so again, it to 15 this, quid, hasn't he? Yeah, well, I believe he has, and I think there are plans, I don't know, I think the plans, it's not going downwards, is it? it's only going upwards. No, exactly. So, so these are really wonderful ideas, you know, you know, in times particularly where people are struggling, there's a lot of austerity about people are losing their jobs, etc, mm. etc. This is a wonderful, cheap way of travelling, if it's managed properly. And everyone has to accept, if we're going to use it, we must be identifiable. That is a starting point, otherwise the whole, otherwise the whole thing falls flat yes. on its face. And we have to have registered tabards. And it is going to happen, it will happen, it must happen. Um, because otherwise you might as well say, well, look, just do what you want and let's have no law in place for you people. And obviously that's what the cyclists want, but that, that it, it's not going to happen because the law is, of course, placed for cyclists as well. Just well, I mean, there is a sense, people. though, is there not, Nick, at the moment, that there are a lot of laws that don't seem to apply to anybody. I mean, we've got new laws, supposedly, that stop people from uh, gathering in groups of more than six. Uh, that seems to have gone by yeah. the wayside. Nobody's paying any attention to it. You know, an awful lot yeah. of the laws of this country are just being ignored. And therefore, if they're not actually uh, enforceable, I would say they're not really yeah. laws. Yeah, well, that, that's a strong argument. Um, and, you know, if, if people think, well, they're not going to be policed, I mean, look, you, know, you, you can look at more serious offences like burglary and you say, well, look, the police tend to turn, turn a blind eye, don't they? That's the reality. They give you a, an insurance reference number as long as no one's hurt. Mm. So we, we have laws in place to protect us. But you're right. If the police are not going to enforce them or if there's no prospect of anyone getting caught, 
they might as well not exist. Well, exactly. So if you have if you have cyclists or or people on e-scooters, and they know that they're not registered, so no one's going to know who they are. What is the whole point of having these laws? And I I agree, it's a complete waste of time. And people assume, this is the argument, people assume, well, they're they're not really bound by them. No, of course. Um, I mean, is there a a sort of technological solution to this, Nick, that maybe we haven't thought of? Because we're now living in a world where I can walk into a pub and I can hold my phone over a QR code, which is one of those black and white squares. Uh, I can access a website via that. Uh, I can either order food or drink uh, or indeed register my details. Is there not some kind of chip? Um, or something yes, that we could put would, into these bikes, I would, maybe? I, I would have thought there is. I would have thought that when you, by the time you rent a bike, um, you insert your chip with your details on, yeah. and the bike is only only capable of movement with your chip inserted, right. whether it be on your phone or actually on the bike itself, on the scooter itself, and um, and your you, your journey is recorded, yeah. you're tracked in the same way that car cars, most cars now have them. Um, black cards on yes. so that a manufacturer can work out you know your your mode of driving what fast how speed you how fast you're going etc etc if you're yeah. involved in an accident they, they interrogate the card mm. um and i think i think that that is will be a simple solution um and it it, it actually will be another way of avoiding the, the reluctance of people wearing identification plates or, or tabards yeah. which people seem very reluctant to do because presumably but, but course, it, it, it wouldn't work for cyclists because that, that, that's a different argument because, you, you, uh, you know, with cycling, you can buy them. Um, with these e-scooters at the moment, you, you can only rent them. Um, yes, but I mean, I suppose, I suppose also, though, I mean, there are rental bikes now available in, in London. A lot of them are yep. these electric yep. ones, which you can leave yep. basically anywhere. They don't need to be plugged back into a, to a station or anything like that. And you can basically leave them anywhere you like on the street. And it, as you say, it's only, it's only activated by either a credit card or, or some kind of chip and pin system, whereby, you know, it's registered to you while you're on it. Um, of course, an electric bike doesn't fall in the same category legally as an electric scooter. Does it not? Um, it falls. No, it doesn't. It, it's not a mechanically propelled vehicle um, because it, it's not propelled exclusively by itself. So that that is regarded, in fact, as a cycle ah. in, in, from a legal perspective. And so that means it's, it's not a different. The, it's not in the same family. It's not in the same family as an e-scooter. Okay. So if if you're if you're pedalling your electric bike and then you you know you're using electricity to self-propel or assist propulsion. Um, but that is the same as a cycle. Mm. It isn't the same as an e-scooter. So, right. you, you know, the law is very much more generous. And, of course, you're still anonymous. But, um, so, yes, on, on all rental bikes, electric bikes or e-scooters, you, you could have that. But, you know, m- most people don't rent bikes. They, ha- they own bikes and mm. they use them, you know. And, and if someone could develop some technology whereby, you know, you, you had something in your bike to record you, then that, that would solve a massive problem. It and would. It would uh, it, and it, it's a very good idea. And I'm mm. sure lots of your scientific listeners are <laughs> busy working on <laughs> how to make a, a small Absolutely. So, so what do you reckon we can do here? Are you, are you lobbying uh, the mayor's office or anybody for this uh, registration scene? Um, well, I'm, I'm constantly um, talking about the fact that we need to know who is scooting or cycling at any one time. Mm. And, um, I'm writing about it all the time. I'm talking about it on the radio. Um, so, so hopefully the government will sit up and listen, because if it doesn't, particularly, particularly with these scooters, and that's what we're talking about at the mm. moment, I think there are going to be some very serious incidents. Uh, and we, we want to act before it's too late. 
And, you know, psychologically, once you know you are responsible, somebody is watching, you are accountable, that does affect what you do and the way you behave. Mm. Not suggesting it will make you be perfect, but if you know, actually, if I ride on the pavement, or I'm going to go through that red line, or I'm going to cut across that car and that car and that car, and someone sees me and I'm going to be traced, I'm responsible. That will affect what you do. It will affect your thought process. As, of course, it does with motorists, with mm. people who have their cameras in their cars thinking I may well be recorded. So as well as the law, I've now got, you know, private police on my tail all the time. I need to be more responsible. And yes. it, it does have a deterrent effect. No, I couldn't but, agree more. And so I think you're absolutely right. Well, I'm with you. Uh, I'm with you all the way, Nick. So anything we can do, uh, we can by all means yeah, join forces. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for having me on. No, not at all. We'll talk to you again soon. Nick Freeman there, uh, the guy who is known as Mr. Loophole. Uh, there is a loophole in the law here that needs to be closed because if you are one, uh, one of these electric scooterers, um, you should surely be identifiable. You should surely be responsible. You should surely be accountable. Why would you not want to do any of those three things unless you had some reason to hide? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.